Welcome back, everybody, to On the Horizon with Glenn and Henry, July edition. And this is our podcast where we look at what's on the horizon and things we can do to make our lives in sports turf a little bit easier. Now, in part two, we are going to have a good look at a few things. We're going to have a little chat about anthracnose. We're going to have a chat about tacal patch disease. We're going to look at the whole issue of measuring playing surface qualities. And we're also going to talk a bit more about an agronomic game plan, which is a concept me and Henry have pulled together about how we can document and plan our challenges and how we can put things in place to marry up the agronomic odds with the um, strategies we have to take us through the season in the best position possible. Mm. So I think I'd like to start by looking at measuring playing surface qualities, Henry. How do we extract some data about how good putting surfaces are? After all, we're now in July, and this is probably our best chance of delivering the very best putting surfaces we can throughout the whole year. So it seems like a good time to talk about how we measure that quality and ask the question, why are we doing all of this? Henry, I know you've got some thoughts on this subject matter. Yes, yes, Glenn. I've got um, I've got quite a lot of experience of measuring golf green playing qualities because uh, it was something that we formally introduced when I was at the SRI as part of the uh, agronomic assessment. Um, and I know it's a fairly touchy subject, as I found out at the time, because when I began turning up at golf courses uh, with a stint meter, um, as well as a clegg hammer and smoothness meter, the reaction of greenkeepers or course managers was generally to look at me with killer eyes when they saw the stint meter, as if to say, you can sling your hook, putting it politely, if that's what the visit has turned into. Because a stint meter has generally been a device uh, that has been used by golfers to beat greenkeepers over the head with, in my experience. And so sometimes it's not the easiest subject to talk about. But if we're trying to optimise playing qualities or we're trying to understand the best and most efficient ways of creating brilliant putting surfaces, then we need to quantify them. And I think we've all come to terms with that in recent years, actually. You know, things have moved on do need to proceed with a little bit of caution when it comes to all this. Um, Glenn, you were on the other side of all this, weren't you? Did you get involved with um, stint meters, readings and such as a course manager? Yes, Henry, I did. I was a big fan of the stint meter. Uh, I used it slightly differently to other people, though. I tended to use it to hit golfers with whenever they mentioned it. Indeed. Actually, I should say, my, in my experience with greenkeepers was that they mainly used the stint meter to hold the toilet door open, uh, which, of course, is vital on occasion. But, of course, we digress. Indeed. I've been in a few greenkeepers' yards and a few toilet doors do need propping open. Um, I was a big fan of data, though, Henry, and it seemed to me that using the stint meter was the only simple way to gather Green's data. So I did use it, and I put it... I used it a little bit differently to most people, though. I had one in the pro shop, and I had one in the yard. Um, I was sat on my desk rather than at the toilet door, though. Um, the pro shop's job was simply to stimp the putting green, 
which was right outside of their front door on the same spot every single day, seven days a week, 364 days a year. I did let them have Christmas Day off. And then they had to enter it into a spreadsheet. And from the day I started to the day I left, we had a pretty decent record of where that one spot on the putting green stimmed on a daily basis. Now, the objective of this for me was to work out what the ideal putting surface speed for our members was. I, I didn't ask the pro shop to share that data with golfers, although, of course, it leaked out. I've never known a pro who can't who can resist temptation to boast about a stint meter reading um i asked them simply to log the feedback against the data that we were gathering and my assumption when i went into that project was there would be an optimum speed that would keep our members happy and, and once i knew that optimum speed all i had to do was deliver that on a regular basis and that seemed like a really simple and good plan yes yes very clever glenn uh, i can't wait to hear how that worked out mm, it never works out how you plan it does it well, to start with, the pro team were awesome. Uh, they did a great job for me. So if you're listening, guys, or if you're there at Hockley still, where I used to work, pass on my thanks to Gary and the team because they were brilliant. Um, some of them were more reliable than others, and some of them needed a little bit less pestering than others. But in general, we did manage to get around five stint meter readings a week from that same spot. And it really did teach me a lot about the importance of green speeds. But the lesson I learned was not the one I was expecting. What I discovered, Henry, that my members were really keen on consistency. There would be some days where I was producing putting surfaces at nine foot on the stint meter and I'd be getting great feedback about how quick they were and how well they were putting and we'd get pats on the back and we'd be everybody's best friends. And then there were other days when they'd be running at nine and a half foot and I'd be told that they were too slow by exactly the same people. But when he looked at this data, what became clear was the problem wasn't the green speed. It was how much the green speed was varying. So when I was being asked to deliver quicker surfaces for club championship or for seniors open day or anything like that, they got used to those greens running at those speeds. But they would turn up the next day and they would still expect their putt to roll out. Now, they got used to them from the previous week. And, you know, because we all know you don't create those putting surfaces overnight. You need to work them through a period. And they got used to them and they, they boasted to all their mates over the week about how quick the greens are at the moment. And they'd invited them all over. They would bragged away in the clubhouse over a coffee and a soggy bacon roll, only to walk onto the first green and leave it three foot short. Um, and then they would be so disappointed and they'd spend the rest of the round making excuses whilst their mates from a neighbouring club smirked away about how much quicker their greens were. And so the more I gave them quicker surfaces, the more they wanted them. But when I resisted the temptation to speed them up and just allowed them to become consistently good, things levelled out of it. And when you raise that bar... I guess you just got to be prepared to keep it there. And the challenge is never wanting to disappoint the club captain on his big day. You want to give him that extra foot and you know you can find it if you have to. But that was creating a bigger problem for me down the line. And when I realised that I just couldn't sustain it, we had to change it. After all, we were a normal club with normal workloads and normal resources. And I've said many times the greens I had had some challenges. So... 
What I started to do was to try and deliver a very simple nine to nine and a half foot on a daily basis. And I tried to keep it as close to that as possible. The challenge for me came when I refused to try and speed them up for key events because I knew then that would drive the perception and this negative loop that next week our putting surfaces were too slow. The worry there is that you then start getting labelled as being unhelpful and in a members club environment, that is not a very comfortable position to be in. No, no, really interesting, Glenn. And yeah, I think uh, there's lots of studies, isn't there, that, that, that show that even the best golfers aren't able to reliably estimate a green speed accurately. Um, and of course, we, we, we all know that the ideal green speed speed for each course would depend on their nature and how sloping they are for instance and and so we shouldn't try to live up to general standards we should all be trying to make sure that uh, it's right for the golf course and that the golfer experience is uh, an enjoyable and challenging one targets do get banded around at times um actually don't they and um they're usually the stick to be the greenkeeper with uh, don't the european tour aim for stint meter readings of 11 to 11 and a half feet um whereas the open is uh, reputedly in the region of 10 and a half feet i think which is you know always a closely guarded secret actually but even that would depend on the the sort of level of contouring of the individual course and the wind speed on the day and things like that i think i think they just focus on getting it right on the day really which is not a bad day of, uh, not a bad way of looking at it um, but most importantly on this subject i tend to fare a lot better when the greens are running about eight and a half to nine feet on the stint meter with my heavy hands uh but i don't think that there's a universal standard that we should be living up to like like you say i really think that in terms of green speed it's all about listening to the feedback knowing what's right for your course at any given time and striving for that consistency that's what the the stim meter was originally developed for wasn't it as a way of measuring consistency rather than absolute sort of speeds or the distance of ball rolls um i think the main problem in this territory is the human characteristic of uh, innate competitively competitiveness and a tendency to exaggerate at all times um, that we all have um, so it almost inevitably turns into this arms race where everyone gets all giddy and whipped up about who's doing what and um you know what the green speeds are on any given day and what the neighboring courses are doing and that it needs to be in double figures and sometimes green keepers actually enter into this don't they with the with possibly some kind of ego trip or maybe even uh you know the whole cv item uh of sometimes creating unsustainably quick surfaces uh, for a period at the expense maybe of other important agronomic aims uh, you know, there's multiple instances where people have had to pick up the pieces from following someone like that who's sort of employing measures that aren't sustainable over the longer term or leads to a deterioration that someone else has to sort out. It is a, a complicated issue, though. Uh, did it create any problems for you, Glenn? I didn't get too much pressure from the club, to be honest. There was always a desire to deliver quicker greens. But I think our... Um, 
kind of escape route was that we had some fairly sloping greens and actually anything above nine and a half foot really limited the number of positions we had available to us on those two or three very slopey greens. So for me, the speed to kind of pin position ratio was pretty important. I was very lucky with my chairman of greens. They were always very open to a wide range of feedback from throughout the club. Um, I think the challenge really comes where you get those chairman of greens who are very focused on one element of the club, those low handicappers, the better golfers. And they want to see them having a competitive advantage rather than the wholesale club enjoying themselves. And that's where things become a bit more of a struggle. And I was lucky enough in my career to avoid that situation. I did actually have a good experience of of that kind of thing on one of my agronomic visits. I remember turning up at a relatively normal members club during the summer, probably July. And as I was walking along the, the, the car park towards the clubhouse, I saw four blokes clearly waiting for me, uh, with all with their arms crossed. Um, so I went up to them, introduced myself, and it turned out that they, they were some of the more vocal members of the first team and the agenda for the visit which they had hijacked as a result of giving the greens chairman so much grief um was green speeds and that the greens weren't quick enough for them or for the better players in the club and that they should be at least 10 feet on the stint meter and so with stint meter in hand i asked them uh, if there was a green on the course that were that would be quick enough and that if all the greens on the course were the same speed, they would be happy. And they said yes. And so we trooped over to it. I think it was like a newer construction uh, and it was also quite undulating. And so we had a part and clarified that this was indeed what was required on the wider course. And so I measured the green speed properly and showed them that it was running around nine feet i think it was might have even been slightly slower than that at which point of course they all walked off in disgust in disgust and no longer were interested in wasting any more of their own time but i suppose the point with that it was was that they weren't wrong particularly in wanting greens of a certain standard the point was that what they were demanding wasn't right and the Greens chairman, or the, and certainly the course manager, were being put under pressure as a result of that. And what I always found on these visits, when we started measuring playing qualities, was that when you do take the measurements, and you know, you've got to take the feedback into account, they always diffuse the arguments rather than creating them. Um, and it's quite simple, really. You just can't argue with the data. Yeah, I had some members like that, and I'd love to have been there in that situation. Yeah, of course, you know, there there are there is more to Green's playing qualities than just the distance a ball rolls from a standard delivery. Um, smoothness and trueness, or the purity of the roll, is also vital. Um, not only in terms of being able to read putts properly, um, or the ball holding its line, but also... Because simply because a ball rolls further on a smoother surface. And when we started measuring smoothness on the visits with the smoothness meter, it immediately became really clear that the way in which you improve green speed would be to focus on smoothing the surfaces out, improving the smoothness to make the ball roll further. Uh, And this was kind of 
of huge significance agronomically because the ways in which we improve surface smoothness, top dressing, rolling, brushing, grooming maybe, the use of plant growth regulators, etc., are generally less aggressive than just shaving the greens to within an inch of their life. Uh, because the focus on like constant, super close mowing is agronomically anyway, way more difficult to sustain in the longer term. And um, um, with all these things, you know, of course, there's a balance to be to be struck. But as an agronomist, I would always try to to recommend you know, an acceptable path, you know, to achieve the desired standards, but with the least amount of jeopardy associated with it. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, there's kind of smooth and slow is better than fast and bobbly is a phrase that I've heard banded around more than I'd like, because it's a, it's a kind of point of view that I still struggle with a little bit, Henry, mm. because... To me, smoothness and speed are directly related. If you've got a bumpy, bobbly green, it's really difficult to get fast surfaces. Mm. That is unless they are parched and dried out excessively, which which is a much bigger issue than just good putting surfaces. There's something else going on then. Um, smoothness and speed are directly related, and particularly on putting surfaces I had to manage, which were creeping bent that were transitioning to poa, or greens, power greens that were transitioning to brown top bent. It was very difficult to ever get them running slow and true. It was either quick and true or slow and bobbly. It was really difficult to find that middle ground. Now that's my own personal experiences and why I chose to manage those awkward greens, I'll never know. But I do go on to some sites where I see 100% power annual and you could see how much easier it would be in that situation than the kind of transitioning ones that i always seem to be managed but equally i go to some places where they have some really nice fescue bent swords and i can see how much simpler that would be assuming you can sustain um, those grass species without too much power coming into them and i suspect most of the industry though are in a similar position to where i was where you have a number of different species going on and and I think there's definitely a correlation between smoothness and speed, but actually July is probably the month where the kind of differential growth patterns of all the grass species you're likely to have disappear. And that argument falls out of the window a bit for us during this period. Uh, sometimes in July, I made the point of going out and just stimping all 18 greens within an hour of each other just to see what the speed differences across the whole site was. And I was amazed at that variability across greens, Henry. Um, there was a good foot and a half variance across all 18 for me, and it's a really interesting exercise. I think that is much more important than one individual stimp meter reading. Consistency from 1 through to 18 throughout the day rather than the single quickest putting speed you can come up with to show off. Everyone can play that game and come up with that one individual quick putting or stimp meter reading if they want to. I'd, personally, I'd love to see a much more effective, quick and easy way that we can do regularly at measuring smoothness, because I think that is the ultimate reading. That's what we all really want to know. But I just haven't seen any devices, any technology, any methodology yet 
that makes that really quick, easy and reliable. I just want an easy way to associate a figure with how smooth my surfaces are. I'd, I'd love to see someone establish some technology that could do that quickly and easily and on a regular basis so we could relate, relate our ITM strategies to that figure and really understand the correlation. Yeah, obviously the the SDRI smoothness meter was a major innovation in there in, in this area, and then of course there's the parry meter. Uh, but I don't still don't think we've got the answer for everyone yet, have we? Um, but we do need it. Anyway, moving on, uh, the Clegg hammer, which we use to measure surface hardness. I found to be, as an agronomist, a really useful tool. Uh, and it always highlighted the negative impact of subsurface organic matter accumulation on uh, surface firmness consistency, really, within the greens, between greens and throughout the year, depending on their soil moisture content. As I said, the, the measurement of playing qualities was a game changer for me as an agronomist, but m- mostly it was important because it clearly showed what we needed to focus on and you couldn't argue with the data. So it just made things so much easier and it made uh, 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 sort of my recommendation so much more compelling uh, when you could easily evaluate them. Yeah, it really is a fascinating conversation, Henry, and one that I think greenkeepers have on a regular basis between themselves, but they probably don't get the opportunity to have these open conversations with their golf club management as they should you know the the knock-on effect of driving these green speeds up is huge the agronomic impact it has on the turf is significant and we could reduce a lot of the pressures and challenges we face by simply accepting slower putting speeds and i'm not even talking about slow greens here i'm talking about sensible speeds and not chasing those really quick surfaces With the right investment in rolling technology, regular top dressing, accepting good quality putting surfaces over speedy putting surfaces would dramatically reduce the impact of disease. In fact, these podcasts, Henry, would only probably be about 25 minutes long if people would accept higher cutting heights. But the golf pressure is there. And, you know, in turn, when we do tighten things down, we have to introduce a huge amount of additional strategies to mitigate the damage being caused by these lower cutting heights. Absolutely, Glenn. I mean, that shortening of the podcasting is is obviously a key driver for everyone. So I would expect, you know, why whole scale adoption of, of that. But look, it's a, it's a debate that we've had in the past and it's a debate that we'll be having in the future. And we all understand that playing qualities are the most important attribute of the Greens. Uh, I just think that we both think we need to be realistic and sensible and dare I say it's sustainable but you know it's that pressure isn't it it's it's not only the agronomic pressure on the turf that results in this kind of arm arms race but it's also the pressure that on the on the 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 green keepers and the the sort of course managers um that you know that that we're fighting for I suppose yeah and I guess I've become more golfer than green keeper these days I don't play very often Henry but when I do go out and play, uh, because I'm not practicing or going out and playing regularly, I'm not thinking about putting a decent score together. What I'm doing is enjoying the walk and enjoying the company, and I'm enjoying hitting that occasional great spot, that occasional great shot. And that's what pulls me back. It's that five iron that I nailed into the heart of the green that makes me forget all about those lost pinnacle golds. 
where my power fades, takes over, and they disappear off into the woods. Um, putting surfaces, though, were great levelers, and I can't hit the same shots as Phil Mickelson around the green, and I don't have the touch to play those chip shots that he does. And as much as I want to hit drives like Tiger Woods, you know, even off one leg at the moment, he would still outdrive me easily but what i can do is i can attempt to putt like them it's a level playing field and i completely get why golfers would want to see their putts taking those breaks where they roll it along the top of the tier and it takes that break on the hill and i, I get more out of those parts of the game than i do out of putting a low score together and i think there's a lot of golfers out there like me that really enjoy that part of the game so it's it's such a tricky subject and I'm not sure we can discount putting surfaces just because, in general, golfers would score lower scores. You know, if if they were a little bit slower, because it's not always about putting good scores together, and it's about people knocking balls around the golf course and enjoying the shots they hit. And you know, if it if it was all about putting good scores together. I suspect our, our bin on the third tee wouldn't be full of half-completed scorecards and you would never see people hitting drivers off the tees. It would be a free wood all the time. But it's about hitting good shots and those putting surfaces are the real levellers. Yeah, I'm with you, Glenn. It's a difficult subject to reconcile, um, in, mainly because there's a huge amount of personal opinion in there. Indeed, look, we've got loads of technologies that we've introduced to help us push these putting surfaces further and further and further. The, those technologies were introduced to help us deliver the same level of putting surfaces, but reduce the levels of stress. But what we've chosen to do as an industry is utilise all of those technologies, things like plant growth regulators, rollers, top dressing, top dressers, and choose to deliver faster surfaces with them so we never actually get any closer to this reducing stress point and and i guess there's the question just because we can deliver these surfaces should we be doing it uh, i don't think we've got the hen the answer henry they're conversations that need to be had with your club so at least they understand the implications but i guess we come back to that big old stumbling block that gets mentioned on every podcast and you touched on it earlier it's not even what goes on at your golf club that is the challenge it's what's happening at the other golf clubs that your members play. Yeah, but yeah, this one's going to run and run. Uh, we just need to say that the, that the green speed needs to be right, that the, uh, that, that the passing surfaces need to be consistent, but that we you know, should be trying to achieve this in a, in a sympathetic way. And using measurements is really helpful, not only in terms of guiding our work, but also for communication or, or diffusing arguments. And, and so that is a good way to proceed. So, you know, whether you, whatever you think about it, sort of measuring the playing qualities, I think is essential. We said earlier we'd take a really good look at take-all-patch disease. What have you got for me? Well, Glenn, interesting one. Uh, take-all disease can be really, really nasty. And so, look, let's just do a little bit of background. Uh, it is caused by the fungal pathogen, uh, Galmanomyces graminis, 
And just to properly recap, a fungal pathogen um, attacks a host plant in order to draw nutrient from it to fuel its own reproduction. As simple as that, really. And in the case of Takel patch, the pathogen can actually kill the host plant. So there is a high potential for it to cause significant damage and loss of grass cover. Okay, it is a soil-borne pathogen that is really common in agriculture. And it was actually more common in turf uh, in the UK and Ireland in the early 1990s. And that was mainly as a result of a number of new course constructions being undertaken at that time. Um, but it's less common in the UK now, but it's still quite common in Ireland. Uh, as we discussed earlier, as a consequence of those kind of um, special factors, such as the high pH of root zones and top dressings and irrigation water, uh, as well as probably a higher proportion of bent grass in the sward species composition. Also, however, we shouldn't forget, we, there has been a, a couple of high-profile course constructions or remodellings recently uh, in both the UK and Ireland, actually, that, that have re-established sort of new greens with the latest varieties of creeping bent grass on fresh root zones. And so for those course managers, take or patch would be, and probably still is, a clear and significant danger for major damage to occur. So fungal disease can be really damaging, but it needs some sort of special circumstances for it to really take hold. Yeah, I remember that 90s period. That's really my only experience of it, Henry. Um, a couple of new build greens that we had on courses I've worked at at the time. Um, so only experienced it on those new builds. But um, remind me, how, how do we recognise it? Okay, so it's easy to spot and the symptoms can develop really quickly. It's one of those ones that can uh, you blink and all of a sudden you're in real, real trouble. And so that's why I, I suppose a preventative strategy is the way to go. Uh, it manifests itself as brown or bronze uh, saucer-shaped patches or sort of rings sometimes. And they might be sort of up to the size of a dinner plate or maybe even slightly bigger. The, uh, the patches can have less susceptible grass types remaining in the middle. And this is quite common. And it's one of the sort of key ways in which you identify it, that the patches might have fescue or annual meadow grass sort of remaining in the middle, but all the bent grass is gone. And also, if you kind of t took a closer look at the roots, there might be some brown discoloration there. So fairly easy to identify, I would say. Yeah, it's quite distinctive. I do remember mm. it being a very obvious pattern and distinctive to much else I'd ever seen. OK, so we kind of got a bit of an outline. Uh, why did I see and hear so much of it in the 90s? Then? And it, it, you know, it just seemed to disappear off the radar, though. I'm sure for even 90s... Uh, I was a young greenkeeper and it was it was going to be the next big disease and it was going to kill everything, but it just seemed to disappear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like all diseases, take or patch disease develops when the conditions are favourable or conducive to its development. Uh, and in this case, those conditions would be possibly alkaline root zone conditions, um, a susceptible host, particularly bent grass, uh, and situations where there are few antagonistic or competitive soil fungi about 
to outcompete the uh, the pathogen in this case, and that would be you know such as a sterilised root zone or a new root zone. So those new constructions um, in the nineteen nineties probably ticked all those boxes, which is why uh, in that early 90s golf boom uh, in the UK and Ireland, why so many courses were affected so badly. But like I, I keep saying, it, it, might, it might also be present in territories, you know, where the local pH of the sort of root zone or irrigation water is high or alkaline such as in Ireland but yeah the reason why it was so common in the 1990s was a lot of new root zones so there's some quite specific um, challenges and symptoms and drivers for that does that make our agronomic game plan any simpler well yeah kind of there there are a few key factors for us to focus on it's quite simple really you know if if all the other factors you know like ph and new root zones and all this that and the other um are favorable we you know we might need to consider uh establishing less susceptible hosts or a blend of grasses that are less vulnerable to attack than pure bent grass so we might establish the green from you know maybe a bent and fescue mix or even from cause um, from the you know the existing greens to get some consistency there. We would certainly need to avoid the application of lime if possible because this might create alkaline conditions that favour the disease and it might also balance it might affect the balance of the antagonists as well to to sort of uh, leave the way open for the Gamanomyces graminis to sort of take over. It's particularly important actually is the, the, the quality of the irrigation water, you know, in, in new constructions particularly. You know, that needs to be checked all the time because if you're applying uh, irrigation water with a high carbonate content or a, or a sort of an alkaline, sort of al- that's alkaline in its nature, you might be sort of really asking for trouble. So, so need to get on top of that. And then it's basics, really. We need to ensure that adequate nutrition is applied. That can can be really influential. Nitrogen is particularly important, but both phosphorus and potassium are also shown to be that if they're in sufficient quantities, then um, then it will make a big difference in terms of lowering the the. Um, likelihood of attack. Uh, the application of manganese might be important also, but we do have fungicides available as well. Uh, the active ingredient azoxystrobin is very effective against take-all patch, which is which is one of your products, Glenn, isn't it? So let's let, let's throw it back at you. So for if we are thinking about using heritage against take-all patch, what is the recommendation? So we're looking to two applications here, Henry. Fourteen days apart. Apply it as a drench to achieve root uptake. Um, we want to get this on as a preventive application, and that's generally based on historical experience. Um, so really high water volumes, good spray setup, and um, you'll notice when you look at that heritage label that you'll see a very wide range of water volumes on there. I think it's 125 litres a hectare up to a thousand. And that is because as a product, it has such a wide, broad label on it that we're hitting so many things. And um, But in this situation, we want as high a water volume as possible so we get that down to be taken up by the roots and deal with this 
in the soil. Mm, yeah, it's a soil-borne pathogen, isn't it? It does affect the roots. So yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really good. So I should say actually that we did some some nice ITM integrated turf management trial work on this during the 2000s at the SCRI, and the trial shows that uh, if you did take a nice integrated approach take into account in this case slow release nutrition the application of trace elements in particular manganese and the application of iron to maybe acidify the surface this led to a radical reduction in the level of take all patch compared to the untreated control plots so you know these measures really do work and our simple knowledge of the factors that favor the development of a pathogen and sort of working to to sort of adjust the situation and maybe can create a less conducive environment for its development can result in significant reduction in the level of disease and the level of damage. So with Takel Patch, ITM can work, but uh, can work really effectively. But we always need to sort of, you know, take that fully integrated approach and know that actually if all the factors are in favour of Takel Patch, then a preventative fungicide programme would also be, you know, very sensible if there's a risk of significant and widespread damage occurring. But with all these things, you know, we just need to think ahead, don't we? Onto the horizon, Glenn. Yeah, it's feeling like a common theme here, Henry. Let's identify the risk, in this case, alkaline root zones, new constructions, bent grass, and a history of the problem. Put the ITM in place, or the agronomic game plan, and then, assuming you've got all of that in place, get the right product on the shelf and know when to target if things are playing in its favour rather than... Yours. Yes, absolutely. So was that OK for you, Glenn? Perfect, Henry. Okay, Glenn, so we've talked a lot about anthracnose in the previous episodes, haven't we? But um, we've never gone back to the basics. So now would be a good time, I would reckon. Can you shed a bit of light on what governs the development of this disease for us all? Well, I'll give it a go, Henry. I'm feeling a bit of pressure after your fantastic take-all effort, though. So here goes, Calitricum cereali is a common saprophyte that thrives in dead and decaying tissue, but it's also the casual agent of anthracnose in turf. Now, if I think back to when I was at college and I first learnt about this in the 90s, it was referred then at Calitricum graminicola. But um, since then, we've had a change. By the way, Glenn, by the way, I'm so enjoying your pronunciations, I've got to say. Yeah, well, I I have been practising these behind the scenes, Henry, and um, you've put me off my train of thought now. But um, (laughs) it's all right. So anyway, for those of you that are of a similar age to me, mid-20s, you also probably went to college and studied in the 90s. And um, you can see how good my maths is there. And you probably remember the change or still refer to it as Graminicola. Um, that change was made and proposed from Graminicola to Cereali to reflect the specifics of the pathogen in turf grass. That Graminicola name should now only be used for fungus found in corn. So there you go. If you're referring mm. to Calitricum Graminicola, you are actually talking about anthracnose in corn 
or wheat, I think. Um, anyway, okay. it can infect a variety of plant hosts, but most often found in poa annua and sometimes in creeping bent grass. Plants at low cutting heights are particularly vulnerable. Okay, very good. So, what are the symptoms of attack that we need to be looking out for? Well, an important diagnostic feature for anthracnose is the asexual fruiting bodies known as a curvu... Oh, I can't pronounce that one. Help me out with that one, Henry. I would say a servuli. There you go. Thank you very much. A servuli with their black hair like setae. Come on, Henry. Help me out. Yeah, I go with that. Setae. There we go. That <laughs> can be found on the necrotic tissues. This is where Kate Entwistle gets on the phone and puts us straight, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, God. There you go. Um, during the season, folia blight symptoms often appear as grey, orange or bronzed spots around one to kind of one and a half centimetres in diameter. As the disease progresses, small patches can coalesce into groups. Uh, basal rot is easily identified. It's banana yellow and the plant just lifts away from the sward as the base is severed by that fungal activity at the base of the plant. Mm, so actually we've got um, this pathogen, the, I'm going to go for it, Coletotrichum graminicola. Oh, not really very good. That's the um, old school, Henry. You can tell, you can date uh, your education there. Yes, well, yeah, absolutely. So we've got a single pathogen, but it can occur in different conditions and affect different parts of the plant. You've got the foliar blight and you've got the basal rot. And they kind of manifest slightly different symptoms, obviously. Um but they are both caused by the same pathogen, so let's not get too confused. No, that's right. It, it can cause two types of infections. Basal rot in cool, wet periods. In fact, I saw some this May already where we had that prolonged period of cool, wet weather. Um, and I would imagine there was quite a bit of it around this year because we were very cool and wet to start. And then you have the other type, which is the foliar blight, which is more severe during the summer months when environmental factors result in stressed turf. It's particularly difficult to get to grips with. There are so many reasons you'll have it, and the, simply the management practices you're putting in place can help it evolve into that basal rot disease as the summer transitions into autumn too. So as we go through this period in the summer, lots of the things you'll be doing from a management practice point of view, pushing greens a little bit harder, all the things we've been talking about for the last two months, Henry, can help it evolve into anthracnose as a foliar version and then turn into that basal rot later in the year. And that presents course managers with another challenge. You know, managing turf to recover from anthracnose in the autumn generally involves methods that are conducive to encouraging microdochian patch at exactly the time when that disease is on your doorstep. Yeah, it is a problem actually, isn't it? Uh, when you think about it. So, um, you know, ultimately the key is stopping it from happening in the first place. So how do we prevent it from becoming a problem? Avoidance and prevention management is important. I mean, that's the key to it. And, and all the cultural methods all revolve around reducing stress levels on the plant. That's everything we're trying to do. We want to be reducing how much stress that plant is under. So lifting cutting heights, adequate moisture, adequate nutrition, 
regular top dressing programs, all those kind of things. Ah, so all good, solid advice. Um, but what if, and you know, it's an obvious question, this one, Glenn, but what if the course manager is already doing this stuff? Look, we need to put as many of those in place to build that foundation. Uh, and then if all of that is in place and we're still getting this problem when we need to go on the offensive and we look to, need to look to stress mitigation technologies that are available to us. We need to look to good wetting agents to help with moisture. We need to look to pigments to help reduce light stress. Make sure that nutrition program is right. Obviously, there are amino acids to help during these stressful periods when the plant can't produce enough of its own amino acids. And then a fungicide strategy timed around those first real periods of stress. Yeah, because it, it, you know, it can be extremely damaging, can't it? And um, at exactly the wrong time of the year, you know, with the height of the season in July, conditions are really starting to ramp up to, to favour its development and it could cause us serious problems. Yeah, it really can. And um, it's an interesting one. We have gone into this for two or three sessions now in these previous podcasts and and Greg down at Hailing, thank you, Greg. You came back to me and you had a chat and you said you loved what we were talking about. But you did draw to my attention that we said it really wasn't the Greenkeeper's friend. And I know you are one of those golf you're one of those course managers that chooses to use it a little bit and try and keep it in check to try and reduce power content in your swords. But for me and for my money, that's a dangerous tightrope to walk. You and me have had a chat about it, Greg. And it's not an easy one to get back in the box once it's away. So for those of you that are looking at it as a power management strategy, you are braver people than I am. Actually, I, I should confess, I don't want anyone to go back and read any of the articles that I wrote uh, in the sort of early to mid 2000s. But I did say that in one of the um, one of the articles that I wrote. Uh, but I kind of wrote back from it afterwards, um, just based on experience. Really, you can't. It's, you really are playing with fire, especially if you've got a high proportion of poerana in your greens, because it's so damaging. It's um, it's difficult to justify the pain that you go through. You know, with a with potentially a longer term aim. Term aim. I think there's there's other ways of favour the finer grasses but you know you know there's lots of different views out there. yeah each to their own every site is different we're not here to judge just to put some good advice out in front of people and if you are going to look at a strategy like that then make sure you have the conversation with your club really think it through write it down and put all the measures you can in place to do what you're trying to achieve <laughs> Okay, um, all right, one of the things we said we'd also have a look at, Henry, are the stresses that July can throw at us and what we can do to reduce those stresses through this month in order to put us in the best position possible to deal with this tricking problem of anthracnose. Um, Henry, why don't we start with moisture content? What have you learned in the past about moisture management? Well, Glenn, I think that moisture management might be the greatest single area uh, of my learning, I suppose, uh, during my agronomic career. Uh, before we started taking accurate moisture probes out on our agronomy visits, 
uh, it's fair to say that we really had no idea what was going on in terms of soil moisture. Uh, before they became the norm, everyone tended to rely on uh, surface visual symptoms of turf stress uh, to guide the need for irrigation or hand watering. Uh, the logic being that the, the localised areas that, that started to show the first signs of moisture stress would be an indication that the wider green would be on the way to needing irrigation. But when you got a moisture probe in your hand, however, you realise that this just was not the case. Just because an area on one side of the green is drying out doesn't mean the rest of it is. And I think everyone quickly realised that, um, that an accurate moisture probe um, is needed because you can't tell by eye. What about you, Glenn? You were on the other side of things, weren't you? Yeah, I was. I was um, really taught to hand water what I deemed at the time properly for the first time when I was working out in the States. Um, and the courses I worked out there placed a really high value on high hand watering. But, you know, let's remember the courses I was working at are very different to the UK. Very big budget, high numbers of staff. The two courses I worked at both had over 45 members of staff. Um, so we had resources and very high standards and expectations and when i look back at how we did it it was very intensive and it involved lots of soil probing to physically remove a core and we would feel it in our hands and we would know what moisture level it was at and if it was dry we would get some hand watering on there and if it wasn't we wouldn't quite simple when I moved to the London club as a deputy course manager and a super keen youngster um, I took that method with me and um, I felt like I was doing everything I could to really drive standards forward. And we equipped the whole team with their own soil probe. So everyone would walk around with their shiny soil probe in their pocket. Um, and we, I got all the team to pull cores out greens. And we allocated the right number of people for hand watering. And we felt we were being as fastidious as we possibly could. As anybody in the country could be. That changed the moment we found a decent moisture probe though, and we started using it. And I suddenly realized for the past decade, I'd just been guessing. And at best I knew if it was dry or wet, and there was, because there's very little difference you can feel with your hand between 10% and 25%. And the, and the first time I got hold of a moisture probe was the first time I really felt that we were investing effort in the right areas. It was a big game changer for us. Uh, and the whole industry, really, when that technology became affordable for us all to use, I think it changed a lot of people's mindsets quite quickly. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so we both had the same realisation, I suppose, and, and understanding that we must have or must use moisture probes running on a daily basis really especially during this time but there there might still be some courses out there that are operating without them and i would strongly say that it's probably the best money that you could spend because irrigating by eye is is really damaging to golf greens agronomically because you'll always end up over watering areas that don't need it just because that area on the left hand side of the green is drying out doesn't mean that the the rest of it is um, and so flicking on the pop-ups thinking that the whole green needs watering just ends up over watering big areas and that agronomically is is 
disastrous, partly because it creates so much work for the future, because it just leads to organic matter accumulation for one. Just having a moisture probe can tell you really just to water those areas um, that need it uh, and before they start showing stress but more importantly I suppose not to water those areas that don't need it and, and generally we sort of found that there'd be areas right next to greens that were sort of uh, in need of hand watering that probably wouldn't need any water for another two or three weeks at times uh, yeah so a complete game changer agronomically Glenn just out of interest as a course manager what target levels uh, were you operating on for your greens so when we're thinking about this we're thinking about volumetric moisture content a percentage figure to represent how much moisture there is in the soil and when i first started out in my first course manager's role where i was solely in charge i was particularly ambitious and i was trying to drive us into the kind of 17 to 20 percent range consistently and it was a target I'd set myself based on what I'd learned at other places. I knew that was right on the edge. And as I've mentioned in one of our previous podcasts, I was kind of trying to drive power into a weak state and let the bents be, you know, kind of tick over. So I almost wanted power stressed on a regular basis. Uh, and it took me a couple of seasons to realise I was just giving myself an unnecessary headache. I kind of levelled out in the end at having a maximum and a minimum rather than giving myself a tight range. I didn't want to allow them to get any higher than 28 and I really didn't want them getting any lower than 20 because that just didn't give me any capacity to miss a hand water or get through the weekend if we had an irrigation breakdown and I'd just be in trouble quickly. You know. It was fine when I had a huge team um, in the States, you know, when we had people in seven days a week, you could get away with that. When I was over there, we we had six greens each hand watering, Henry. We, we had loads of staff and I tried to relate those same levels to the UK and it's not great in a small UK team. And I just in the end, I just realized I needed to give myself a bit more room as I got a bit older and a bit smarter and uh, give myself a bit more room so I didn't have to kill myself all the time trying to keep them super tight and on the edge and I also moved over to a better quality wetting agent which also took the pressure off but yeah kind of 20 minimum I never wanted them to see lower lower than that and I didn't really want them any higher than 28 if I could possibly avoid it yeah taking the pressure off is a good thing uh Glenn isn't it and actually we, we do come back to this quite a lot and I don't know when whether we'll get any grief for it, but sort of, you know, um, being right on the edge is 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 a tough place to be, um, you know, 365 days a year. So, um, all right. So, uh, but getting back to moisture content, what levels of um, drop did you sort of notice during the day? How did the intensity of heat or sunlight um, affect your trigger point for hand watering. I guess that's all about knowing your course and learning your greens. We, we've spoken quite a lot about the last course I managed, and we had a wide range of greens constructions there. Some of them were sand-based, built in the 90s. Some of them were greens that had been there a 100 years, uh, built on top of chalk. But they would all do something a little bit different, and you kind of had to learn each one individually. But as a ballpark figure... 
3%, I think, and I'm going back a few years now, was a big drop over a 24-hour period. You knew if you had like high blue skies, high temperatures and a wind, you could easily lose 3% in a day. But it was, it was the consistency of it for me, Henry. Some golf courses I visited and I talked to the golf course managers about their moisture probes, um, you know, back in the kind of mid to late 90s when we were... All getting really excited. Well, probably later than that, actually, in the kind of 2010, that region, to go around and talk to people about what they were doing. And we probe each other's greens to have a look at this stuff. And I just find some golf courses would see a really consistent level of moisture across their greens. And we never seem to have that. We seem to have a wide range in areas that would hold moisture and drain really slowly and other areas that dry down really quickly. I don't know why. Maybe it was because I avoided using a decent wetting agent at the time. Maybe, you know, but we would see this wide variation. Maybe part of it was the poor irrigation system and the poor pressure. Uh, we were a windy site, so maybe part of it was that. We couldn't rely on overhead irrigation hitting the right area of an evening. And, and maybe part of it was the different greens constructions and all their different natures and and how greens have been extended and bolted onto over the year. But it's really difficult in the situation I was in to pinpoint that figure down. But what I did learn, if I'd simply been relying on my eye or even going to the next step and pulling soil cores with a soil probe and feeling it with my hand, then I reckon I would have always been overwatering. But using moisture probes and hand watering, you've already mentioned it really, is is quite labour intensive, isn't it? And it's obviously essential if we uh, want to not overwater, but July can also be a time of prolific growth around the wider course. How did you cope with those competing demands on your manpower? Yeah, it was a real challenge. The key to that, though, was during the busy periods really knowing your greens because if you knew your greens well and you knew the areas that are likely to dry down first or the areas that allow that would hold the most moisture you could take a soil moisture probe with you whilst you were cutting greens in the morning and give yourself a pretty clear picture with the minimal amount of work now if you knew that the sixth green was always the first one to dry out and it was always the first to dry out in the back left corner of that sixth green you could go there first and that would give you a pretty clear picture straight away what was going on across the rest of the course but that's only really possible if you've invested the time to learn your greens if if you're only doing this once a week then you've got no reference point you really do need to commit some labor hours getting out there watering greens probing on a regular basis and learning how your greens react uh, you need to be doing that on a regular basis and supporting those readings with the right amount of irrigation afterwards. So you do have to commit the labour hours to this. The amount of labour you have to commit will be variable for every golf course, depending on the irrigation system, the site, the variables that I mentioned earlier. And, and there are other factors as well here. You know, simply uh, something simple as what's the water pressure like on your site? How much water can you physically get through that hose? How close are you to quick couplers on the greens? Have you got to drab, drag two lengths of hose in order to get that corner of the green that always dries out? Or have you got a quick coupler right in that back left corner? That has a huge impact. And, and maybe part of the solution for some people is simply next winter going around and putting quick couplers in the right areas of the green, much closer to the putting surface to make it a quick, quicker job. Um, Another thing to think about is the space amongst golf. You know, do you have that labour 
to get out in front of golf and water or have you got to do it in a much less efficient way in the afternoon when you've got golf out there or are you one of those lucky golf courses that gets a break in golf in pressure in the afternoon so you can get out there's so many variables here um it's going to be different for every golf course but for me the foundation of this the starting point is having a really good understanding of your greens I know in the last few years in taking uh, on your new role, Glenn, you've moved away from goal course management and technology's moved on a little bit, hasn't it? But you do uh, get involved with trial work and I know that you have been playing around with some soil-based remote moisture sensors, if you see what I mean. Have they got a place in modern golf course management do you think i think they do so what we're talking about here henry are these small sensors that you can place in your green so you bury them in your greens at a depth you want to measure and then you connect them to your computer via wi-fi and you've got a live link there to soil moisture soil moisture probes through the year so it's constantly updating figures i i think you can get variable timings but the ones i was using i think they updated every 15 minutes so every 15 minutes they would send a reading back to your computer and you would have this vast database of what your soil moisture temperature or as your soil moisture was doing throughout the day and then throughout the year and it would also take temperatures as well which was really useful and you're right i did some work with these in the first year i started at syngenta so that's three years ago now and technology will have moved on significantly since then. Um, at that stage, I was finding they were jumping in and out of kind of connection a bit more than I'd like. And because I wasn't on site, I was never there to reboot them when I wanted and get the whole system moving again. But the data they were throwing out when they were working well was really useful. Now, I'm sure those kind of blips have been worked out by now and... Um, I'd be playing with them definitely if I was a golf course manager because as time goes on, the costs get more reasonable and it all starts to add up. Now, they certainly wouldn't replace, to my mind, a handheld moisture probe where you can go around. But as we were discussing earlier, if you knew the sixth green was the first one to dry out and you knew it was the back left that was always the first one to dry out, if you had one of those remote soil moisture probes in there all the time, it would give you a really clear reading without having to leave the yard. So you could then, you know, have a picture of the rest of your golf course because you've invested the time to learn the rest of it and you've got a reference point. And it would mean you probably get caught out less often and it would help you prioritise your labour better. But you still have to build mm, yeah. that picture yourself, Henry. Yeah, no, I think that they could be really useful as, as, as part of the overall picture, not as a sort of necessarily... Um, you know, um, that you would rely on totally, but certainly to sort of help with your thinking and allocation of sort of your manpower and, and, and sort of planning the day, really, knowing how things are going. So, that yeah, absolutely. I think that they will definitely have their place. So, excellent. That was really good, Glenn. Now, let's keep moving because we have already established that you were a bit of a cheapskate, weren't you? At times, uh, as a course manager, when it, especially when it came to using uh, supporting technologies that could really help with moisture management. Now, obviously, I am joking, but looking at it now, Glenn, with the benefit of hindsight, how important do you think um, the quality of the 
surfactant is uh, when thinking about your summer moisture management strategy? Look, I know you said that tongue in cheek, Henry, but it's actually quite true. Um, I think I did take that part of my role a little too seriously at times. I overplayed the importance of hitting my budget rather than delivering the very best customer experience I could realistically could. Um, from a surfactant point of view, I rarely steered away from those products to be fair on price, but I was a big believer in my ability to hand water. And that probably came from my ego of managing things in the States with a huge team. And I was determined to deliver those standards to a smaller golf club and prove it was possible. And I really felt I could get better control by using a penetrant type wetting agent. And you know, that foundation of having labour available probably led me down the wrong path. Um, we had six guys to a green in the States, and whereas we probably had quarter of a person for all 18 greens at the golf course I was managing in the end, and I tried to emulate something that wasn't achievable in a six-man team, to be honest, and it drove me nuts because I could never achieve what I wanted to achieve. And as I moved away from those kind of expectations and gave myself a bit of a break and um, moved away from those cheaper products that were designed to move water away from the surface, my life started to get easier. When I think back to the times that I was bringing in extra staff at the weekend or setting my alarm for 3.30 so that I could go out and both mow greens and hand water them in front of golf, I realised I was just setting my expectations too high and not using technologies to help me out. I think with my newfound knowledge, if I ever put a strategy back in place managing a golf course, I'd ensure we got through those hot periods. And we've established in the weather, the weather earlier, Henry, we get some significant temperatures through this period of the year. So knowing what I know now, I would put those right technologies in place at the right time. One for turf quality to reduce that stress but two to take the pressure off me mm, back to that again glenn um it's, it is important isn't it that you don't um, destroy yourself okay and of course icl and syngenta both supply quality surfactant blends don't we that contain different types of wetter that yeah that have penetrance in to get water you know through the surface but also other surfactants that help with spreading of uh, moisture and water conservation and so they are actually quite sophisticated technologies i know that sort of sometimes people are quite cynical about wetting agents and think that they're all the same and they're not really you know some are good and and well thought out others are sort of um at a price point aren't they and it's, it's really interesting to hear your experience of that and that you you clearly came in the end came to that realization that investment in the better technologies can bring turf benefits but also that peace of mind as well okay so let's keep moving a little bit further blindly there's a lot of ground to cover isn't there um there are other me measures that we could employ with uh, to help with stress management uh, that I just think we should touch on because uh, I think we need to find out or think about the other ways um, in which we might make our moisture management more effective. For instance, we need to sort of talk about whether something like sour rolling on a regular basis during July might help the effectiveness of irrigation treatments. Would that 
has been a priority for you, Glenn? I think so. Uh, the thing to bear in mind here is that we are in the optimum period for presenting great surfaces for the golfer. So that for me is about having a really good piece of equipment that does the job without impacting the putting surface and scheduling time into your program to making it happen. And there were definitely times in my career where I neglected my work there because I was really keen to deliver great surfaces and avoided it because I didn't want to disrupt them. Um, and even when I was really on top of it, and whilst I know it's a worthwhile job doing it, I don't know if I ever saw a return on that labour. If it took me four hours to do that job, I'm not sure I ever saw four hours less hand-watering on the back of it. So, important job, but one that always, when I was managing my labour and allocating hours, always had a question mark by it. Mm, yeah, it is interesting, that, isn't it? And, of course, yeah, there's, there's always hundreds of things we could do and we do have to prioritize and so yeah yeah it's just knowing which is which are the more important things i suppose for your course what about other methods to uh, mitigate stress there are some remarkable technologies out there that we can utilize primo max for instance brings so many benefits uh, not only in terms of sort of turf quality but also obviously growth regulation but root development and stress tolerance also um, that needs to be a part of our stress management strategy i would think indeed when we look at the kind of rates we're applying plant growth regulators on green they really are a very cost effective way for huge gain and very little outlay even just things like maintaining green speeds later in the day when some of your members are playing in the evening after work you know if that means it's well worth looking at and if it just gives you the opportunity to remove a cut and replace a roll with a roll you know even those little things can make a difference even if it means you can miss a cut and drag a roll around and stick a hose pipe in the back of it to do a little bit more hand watering for me that justifies the expenditure on a plant growth regulator just with really good timings throughout the summer just to help you on top of things and that's without thinking about all of the other plant health benefits we get by using these type of products. All right, well, we obviously need to consider nutrition, which is important at any time of the year, but particularly important at this time when the greens maintenance is, is most intense. And, you know, as we've already discussed, those external environmental pressures might be at their highest. So we need to be able to maintain turf health uh, and adequate nutrition is a part of that. Um, but the trouble with discussing nutrition is that generally course managers are trying to minimise fertiliser inputs in order, to, I think, to maintain plant quality throughout the day. Um, and that is almost like a conflicting agronomic aim, isn't it? So we do need to be careful that we don't go too far with that, especially if anthracnose is looming. We need to make sure that we are still applying enough nutrient to maintain plant health and decent levels of recovery from all that pain that we're giving the greens at this time. To be more specific, I suppose, as a general rule of thumb, I would say at this time we might be aiming to apply in the region of two to three kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week to golf greens. 
just going on the the research really uh, it would depend on construction type and it would of course depend on course type uh, and i know there will be people uh, out there saying that they don't apply half of that and there will be other people saying that's not enough um but the point is is that if your greens are prone to developing anthracnose at this time then take a look at the level of nitrogen being applied and, and maybe adjust it if it's just too low i think the mistake um with any kind of um fertilizer program is to be you know fixed on it you know if you need to adjust then adjust it slightly temporarily you know you're not selling your soul the need for the application of other nutrients um, as well as nitrogen uh, would probably be highlighted by soil analysis but generally we're looking at getting the nitrogen at the right level more than anything else you do see quite a lot Glenn on on you know in trials that that it might be that there's drought stress in the game or the turf is becoming under pressure as a result of high temperatures or or lack of water at this time but the the plots that are, are just fed without necessarily any moisture management strategies going on but the ones that are adequately fed not overfed but not underfed either the ones where the nutrition is right always stand up way better to those external stresses than than if the nutrition isn't quite right mm. i think it's easy to fall into that trap in july though henry because we've got good growing temperatures you know you'll be continuing to box off decent quantities of grass on greens on a regular basis even if your nutrition levels are low and actually, if you're on that right kind of green, when you reduce those nitrogen inputs, your pine surfaces get slightly easier to manage. And it's not a good long-term strategy, though, but I can see why people fall in that trap. You are setting yourself up for problems further down the line, and it's a huge driver for anthracnose. And if you get anthracnose challenges around August and September, everything you're going to try and do to get yourself out of that position is counterintuitive to what you should be doing to manage against fusarium in that same period so july if anything for me just put your foot down a little bit on that nutrition accelerator pedal and, and give them a little bit more and maybe august september maybe that's the time to consider backing off but for my money it's not july this is the time to make sure we're maximizing all of those decent temperatures all of those good things that are going on and take those wins into August and September period because that's going to be a really tricky period and we want to take those greens in in the healthiest, strongest position we possibly can. We want to make sure we're on really good footing for that next period of the year and that next chapter. That is the microdochium patch disease management chapter which probably starts in August but it's certainly on that horizon. You know, whenever we say that uh, people should apply a little bit more fertiliser, you know, people throw their hands up and say, we're just trying to sell us more fertiliser. And it's not that. You know, if you want to apply, for the sake of example, 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, then just kind of phase it in the right way to be able to accommodate a slight increase during this time. You know, still apply that target level, but, you know, just put that sort of extra little bit in there you know so you do need to plan ahead with your fertilizer tro uh, programs but you know always too little nutrition is uh, equally as bad if not worse 
especially at this time, than too much. It's just like moisture, really. Uh, we're just trying to hit those optimal levels all the time. And that does change throughout the year. So, yeah, just don't be too fixed in your view and make sure that you do make adjustments, up or down, really, uh, depending on what the agronomic objective is. And we know that the agronomic objective during July is let's not add extra stress or weakening into what is already a highly stressed situation. So we, we need to get the nutrition right. That's, I think that's absolutely right, Henry. Look, we, we've had a good look at nutrition. We've had a little chat about moisture stresses. And the other stress that I think that gets forgotten about is the stresses we impart with mowers and occasionally overworking them. Yeah. Uh, Any advice on this touchy subject, Glenn? I think, you know, this is one that you generally like the touch paper and and stand well back. (laughs) Yeah. Just be aware, I think. Look, you're dealing with a living, respirating and transpiring plant. And we're pretty extreme with that with our maintenance sometimes. And I just think it gets forgotten. Simply think about the impact of your operations. Think about the impact it's having. If you are double cutting and rolling, that is a lot of pressure you are putting on turf. If your mowers are blunt as well, that compounds the problem. So there's lots of opportunities to improve the setup of your mowers and there's lots of training available from the grinding companies, machine manufacturers. I know there's some independent guys out there who are purely focused on training golf clubs to help them set their mowers up properly. It's a fascinating subject and and one that I don't really have the depth and knowledge to go into, but I know there's all sorts of things you can do with attack angles, relief grinding, and then, of course, there's the older discussion of whether to have contact between real and bottom blade or not, or whether to get the back clap in place out or stick them on the grinders. But there's a lot you can do to help you get the best out of your mowers. And from what I've seen, the better the cut, the less mowing you have to do. So look, take the time to really think about your maintenance operations. Really make sure your mowers are set up properly. And they're all marginal gains, just like all the things we're talking about here. But any marginal gains and improvement you can make in mowing quality is going to improve that plant health. And it all introduces the possibility of less labour intensive work down the line. Absolutely, Glenn. And I think with something so important and fundamental as mowing, that really should be a huge focus of attention. And, we, you know, it's just it's just taking care to make sure that we're not adding extra or unnecessary stress to the situation at this time. That's right. And if we are, be conscious of it and make sure you put as many other strategies in place as possible. I enjoyed that. Um, We've gone through some really nice stuff there, Henry. And we've mentioned a few times in this whole thing of the agronomic game plan. Henry, do you want to talk us through the agronomic game plan yes yes it's a concept that we've that we've been formulating in the last few months isn't it um and i think it's kind of borne out of the fact that there's there's always so much going on for the course managers and and lots of different things to think about 
that we all need um, a simple way of, of keeping focused on those things that really might have a significant impact of the turf on the turf in the near future, like uh, I suppose stress or disease, such as anthracnose in this case. Um, something that helps us to think ahead or just ground us into sort of not forgetting that there's some important things that we can do on a day-to-day basis that can be um, really effective and, and make the difference between a serious situation developing and it not developing, like a simple game plan that we might have pinned up against the wall that um, that just, I don't know, summarises the, the key problems sort of appreciates the agronomic odds, really, of whether it's likely to happen or not. And then maybe just a list of simple measures of those things that might be employed from time to time or um, throughout the danger period, maybe, to uh, reduce the likelihood of significant damage occurring. I think that would help us all um, just to stay focused a bit better, really, and um, prevent us from walking blindly into some serious grief. Okay, so with this in mind, Glenn, last week, um, and bearing in mind that that would have been the end of May, uh, because we record this so far in advance, I went over to see uh, a course manager locally uh, to discuss his agronomic game plan for anthracnose disease in July. And he was already thinking about it, actually, because the the course does tend to suffer during this time. It's one of the key problems, you know. Anthracnose at this time can be a disaster. You just got the greens absolutely right, and then all of a sudden... Um, either the smoothness of the ball roll goes or you have to, you know, ease back on your the intensity of your maintenance. Um, so it can be, a, you know, a real disaster. And this, this was the case with this particular situation. So, you know, a preventative strategy was very much needed. And so, first of all, I think with all agronomic game plans, we would start with stating the level of risk. And so in this case, it was very high with the agronomic odds of anthracnose disease developing on this course being uh, very short. And historically, looking back at the records, anthracnose would tend to occur like clockwork almost in the second week of July every year uh, with the vulnerable areas in danger of being affected would be uh, just for the, in this case uh, the 10th green the 12th green and also any wear areas or dry areas essentially any areas that receive uh, sort of additional stress and so our agronomic game plan that we were working on was all about preventing an attack from occurring this year. So we discussed what measures were at that time being thought of that could be deployed to reduce the risk of uh, attack this year. Uh, And of course, obviously, I'll tell you later how we got on. And so course manager you know had it all already had it very clearly in his mind that he planned to reduce the intensity of the greens preparations particularly mowing during this time by raising the height of cut from 3.75 to to four millimeters but at the same time increasing the frequency of roll uh, rolling or turf ironing continuing to apply light top dressings because we know that that doesn't 
influence the level of anthracnose. Prima Max was also being used to maintain consistency and turf quality throughout the day and to make sure that the surfaces remained at the desired playing qualities with that sort of lower intensity of mowing going on. In terms of nutrition, it was a pl- it is planned to apply a granular fertilizer, slow release in late June to boost nitrogen levels to deliver in the region of three kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week during this high risk period. It will tail back afterwards. Um, just to make sure that plant health is at its optimal rather than them being run too lean at this time. It wasn't considered that there would be necessarily a need to provide a preventative fungicide application. Uh, We might be kidding ourselves on that one. But certainly um, there would be some on the shelf if, uh, if... you know, the situation did run out of our control. Uh, The irrigation strategy that we've talked about today would be to probe the greens on a daily basis and hand water any localised areas that were dropping below the target range of 20 to 25% volumetric moisture content, quite similar to yours, Glenn. We're not sailing close to the wind on this one, but we're we're certainly not overwatering either. Weekly overall irrigation would be applied as required but the focus would be mainly on hand watering but it doesn't stop there stress because the risk is so high uh, stress mitigation products are also planned to be used with a with a tank mix of stress buster um, which isn't too much nutrition but as the name suggests it's it's got you know some real benefits in this area uh, tank mix of stress buster rider and primo max applied every fortnight we do try and hit the um, nitrogen figure of around about 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year on the greens we just choose to phase the nitrogen appropriate for the agronomic need really uh, wetting agent is also being applied at monthly intervals of quality material obviously being used and so it's quite a comprehensive plan that's already in the greenkeeper's mind but because it's of such importance and the jeopardy is so high you know it needs to be fully rounded fully integrated um, um, because you know the potential for ruining the year with maybe just uh, a less than focused attitude is kind of quite high. So, but again, simple ITM in practice, really, just making sure that all eventualities are, are covered. But again, we're focusing on our knowledge of the disease and the factors that cause it, and we're just trying to set up a management plan that still allows us to maintain playing qualities, uh, but also reduces the likelihood of attack. And uh, we'll let you know how we go on, Glenn. That's brilliant, Henry. So so what we've really got there is simply a recorded document looking at all the things we've spoken about to date and deciding which ones were right for you on your golf course. Uh, and I guess that will vary on the golf course, the amount of disease pressure they have and the variables within their control. And that's a brilliant idea and it's something we should really put together as a tool that people can download for themselves from Greencast. I'd love to see what people to put together as strategies. Yeah, absolutely, Glenn. There aren't any um, sort of prescriptions with golf course agronomy in my experience. Each site has its own requirements and it's the job of each course manager really um, 
possibly with the help of a specialist technical advisor or agronomist, uh, to develop the plan that's, that's right for their course. And I guess we're here in the background, Henry, to offer support and guidance, but I think we're hoping to provide you with the tools and the thinking and the thought process but the key to the this for me is writing it down. If you write these things down, then you've got something to review depending on your levels of success. And then you can fine tune it to make sure it's better for the following year. Plan, do, review. Great. Uh, one last thing, however, we should mention that if we do need to spray with a fungicide for anthracnose, what should we apply, Glenn, and how should we apply it? So assuming we've put everything in place, we've reduced that risk as much as we possibly can. But in some situations, they really don't have the, the level of control on some of those things that maybe they'd like to. So we're still going to have to reach for that fungicide bottle and put that fungicide strategy in place. First thing is to remember that earlier you go in the disease life cycle, the more effective you will be. Once you see it in that leaf tissue, the leaf tissue is dead. We can still ring fence the healthy turf, but you need to understand the infection life cycle of this is very slow. So many other parts of the plant will already be infected and they will be on that journey on their way to permanent wilting point. Um, so my personal advice would be to go and use FR321, which is a box, one box solution that we've put together specifically for some of these kind of challenges. Uh, it's made up of Heritage, uh, Medallion and Rider. It's a really good tank mix with the spore reduction properties of Medallion in there, the highly systemic activity of Heritage, which would do a great job of protecting the turf during this difficult period in this period of high growth as well. So if you're looking to apply preventatively, look back at your historic records to see the time of the year when you're most likely to see that problem. You can also go on to the Greencast Historic Disease Tool to help you with that. And what it's worth doing there is putting in several years. You can go back quite a way in there and look every year at how anthracnose pressure is mounted up at different points of the year. Study those stressful periods that we've discussed in depth and look to see when is that period you're most likely to trigger the outbreak due to the additional stresses that are being put in place. If you decide to wait until you see some before you apply, then I would recommend going at the very first sign. Look, seriously, the earlier you can get this out, the better. The less infection there will be, the easier it is to get hold of it. That's the key message for me, Henry. Earlier, the better. Absolutely. And I think I think if we are thinking that we will need a fungicide, you know, we need to get the right stuff on the shelf and we need to time its application properly. Chasing the game afterwards is uh, usually a losing one. So, yeah, just, just be aware of those technologies. And, of course, we're there to help as well. So thanks, Glenn. Understood. Well, that's it, Henry. That is July done and dusted. Thank you for helping me out with that. Thank you very much for the Take All 101. I enjoyed that. Good luck, everybody, with July, and join us next month for the next On the Horizon. Uh, you're supposed to say something like, uh, please subscribe to... Uh, I can't remember the wording. Thank you for listening to the On the Horizon podcast. Uh, please subscribe. <laughs>